I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me in our interview with Michelle Rimmel, the writer behind the international hit show, Sexy Laundry, available now on our podcast. Well, Chris, this is it. This is the last episode for the season. I know. Does this mean we get to leave the studio for a bit? No, because we'll be on the radio all summer sharing some of our favorite warm weather listens, and we'll be back next year with a whole new season of shows. So... So no. No. But we get to spend the summer on a lounge chair with a cocktail reading place for next year. And I'm actually really looking forward to that. I like the sound of that. And I'm already thinking about what shows we could bring our audiences next year. So if you, dear listeners, have a play that you've seen on stage or even a Zoom performance that you'd love to hear as an audio drama, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at playme at cbc.ca or hit us up on Twitter at Theatre or Instagram at playmepodcast. So let's jump right into this episode. Laura, you had a chance to speak with playwright Michelle Rimmel about her hit show, Sexy Laundry. What did you two talk about? Yes, this is a play about a middle-aged couple who go to a spa hotel for the weekend to try and recharge their sex life after 25 years of marriage. It's a great premise, and the show started at The Fringe a couple of decades ago, and it's gone on to be a huge international hit that's performed around the world. And it was really interesting to talk to Michelle, who was relatively young when she first wrote the play, and she reflects on the show's success and why she thinks it resonates so much with audiences today. I found her really easy to talk to, and we had a great conversation about marriage and aging and what makes for a truly great comedy. Michelle Rimmel is a critically acclaimed playwright from Vancouver, British Columbia, who began writing at age 17. Her plays Sexy Laundry and Henry and Alice Into the Wild have become international hits, with ongoing productions in Canada, the U.S., Poland, Germany, Lithuania, New Zealand, Iceland, Mexico, and the Czech Republic. Michelle is a graduate of Simon Fraser University, with a degree in fine and performing arts, and in 2008, she was nominated for the Sminovich Prize. Laura caught up with Michelle, who was at her home in Vancouver. Michelle, why did you want to write a play about middle-aged sex? (laughs) Well, that's a good question, because when I wrote it, which was quite a long time ago now, I was just newly married. And I'm not sure that I thought that I was writing a play about middle-aged sex as much as I was writing a play about a marriage that had started to go stale you know, 25 years in. And my glib answer has always been, I'd been married for a few years and I just projected forward <laughs> after like having an argument with my husband about something and thought, wow, this marriage thing is a long time. But for me, what happens with plays is usually I get an idea and then I start hearing the characters in my head. And I know if there's really something there for me to write, if their voices are fairly loud, which Henry and Alice's were like, I really could feel them as a couple. And it became something that I wanted to explore. I don't even know if there was a book at that time called Sex for Dummies, because I just made up the exercises that are in the play. And it was fun to explore that. I think as a as a a new bride or a young wife, you were you were very accurate Mm -hmm. in um, predicting what a what a married life down the road might be like. One of the things that I found really interesting about it is that 
Um, I don't think it's something that is reflected much in plays or movies or TV. We mm-hmm. don't we see couples when they're first getting together, mm-hmm. young love and young sex is is portrayed, mm-hmm. but but not the inner workings of a marriage that has been going for a long time. Was that something you were tapping into as well, that it was a a fresh and unique area to explore? Yeah, well, I think that my previous writing had focused on women who were in their sort of 40s. And I like looking at what women struggle with particularly. So my into the play was really Alice's concern, which was she was feeling kind of invisible, not just in her marriage, but in the culture at large. Like she talks a little bit about where's the person that looks like me? Where are my concerns? Where, you know, how come I can't have like a vibrant, passionate sex life? I don't see that on television or in the movies. And So my kind of like into the whole thing was what Alice was struggling with. So she's the one who decides to go on the weekend. And often it is, I think, women who initiate the let's work on our marriage conversation. So she books the hotel and she kind of goes there with the sex for dummies. And I think she's quite courageous in that way. But she has a fundamental blind spot, uh, which is she's very much projecting onto Henry all her troubles. So he's the problem. And I feel that in relationship, whether it's a young relationship, sort of after the honeymoon phase, when you get into the power struggle phase, or, you know, further on, there's a lot of, you know, finger pointing, like, I feel bad, because you make me feel bad, (laughs) or you haven't unloaded the dishwasher for a long time, or I'm doing more with the kids and stuff. So it was through exploring Alice's discontent with the outside world, but also with herself that I started to get into what was actually going on with the relationship. In the play, you know, she talks about 25 years as a long time. And it is a long time. And I think I also wanted to honor that, that idea that it's a commitment and it's hard work. And marriage is not just an upward trajectory of happily ever after. There are real hills and valleys, highs and lows. And even more than that, there's just that flatlining that can happen, which is just feeling like it's very mundane and, you know, what else is out there? So I wanted to investigate that kind of time in somebody's life. And I now that I am like in my 50s and I actually am coming up to my 25th wedding anniversary, I'm right. I realize I'm right. (laughs) There are are hills and valleys and the more difficult times are those kind of times where it's like, wow, is this all there is, right? I just think that's so profound that as a young person that you could have known that because I think, yes, intellectually, we know, you know, marriage is hard and it's going to get stale at some point. But I've also been married a long time and I'm like, yeah, there's so many, especially I think after the pandemic, there's so many people that have spent a lot more time with their significant other than they ever have before and that the world has been, you know, more stressful than Mm -hmm. it has in the past. So it's very easy, I think, to have those little minor things that might have irritated you before become magnified. Absolutely. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe people have also probably grown together. But for you to not have gone to that place when you're maybe still at that age when you think you'll be different. Yeah. (laughs) That'll never happen to your marriage. Yeah. I wonder what ability or why that was something that you were able to so accurately tap into without having lived that experience. I don't know. I mean, I think as writers, part of it is you walk around in the world with kind of this writer filter on and you're always observing. And one of the dedications in the play, Sexy Laundry, is to my, I have a girlfriend from high school and her parents were happily married for, you know, 40 years and just kind of watching that marriage a little bit. And, but I think for more for me as a writer, what it has to do with is just being willing to mine the truth of the individual characters and what they're asking and what they're struggling with. And like I said, I think my access was with Alice and her discontent. And, you know, at 35 or whatever I was when I wrote the play, I knew what discontent felt like. I knew what it worry about the future felt like or things are getting stale. And then I created this character who was also not particularly happy with her physical appearance, wondering what she was doing with her work life, like kind of asking the question, is this all there is? And I agree with you that I think in your 30s, <laughs> there's at least more hopeful. It's like if you're going, is this all there is? You can go, yeah, but I've got time to 
change it, fix it, do something, it becomes more poignant in the sense and more urgent to answer that question when you're in your 50s. But the thing that I always like, the nicest compliment I would get about Sexy Laundry when audiences saw it was the men would come to me and say, this play is very fair. This play is not just from the point of view of the woman. It's not just like, oh, the the guy that's not doing his chores or the the man, the distant man and stuff, it's taking into consideration what his thoughts and feelings are about the marriage and where how he's actually feeling, which takes a while to come out for Henry, but does come out in the play. And I was I was happy to hear that because that was my intention was to make sure that both of these people ultimately had to take responsibility for a their part in the marriage, but be their own discontent, which I do believe I kind of knew when I was in my 30s and certainly have come to know is that, you know, anytime you're not happy, you really do have to look at yourself and ask the question, what's going on inside of me before you can rectify that with any relationship, you know, be it a love relationship or a friendship. I felt like when I was reading it and listening to it, that it was a very intimate experience because I felt like I shouldn't be in this <laughs> hotel room with this no. couple, right? Because it's not a it's not a window in that I would normally have. And so the fact that this play has been so successful, that it's played all over the world, that it's been around since I think 2005, 2006, mm -hmm. and still going strong speaks to the fact, obviously, that people, you know, in their 50s want to be reflected in this real human way. Tell me about what audiences said. You talked about what the men said. I'm curious about what you think the, the secret sauce is for this play that has made it such an international hit? Well, one thing you said, which is true, is that it's the opportunity to have insight or be inside this very personal experience for this couple, because they're talking about something we don't often talk about. We live in a culture where on television, you see sex all the time. Everybody's doing it everywhere with everyone. But what's happening with Sexy Laundry is people are allowed the insight into this very personal argument. And I think at the core, apart from the comedy, you know, the laughter, and even there are tears when people watch Sexy Laundry, I think there is a sense of relief that happens in the audience, which is that people go, oh, my goodness, somebody else feels like I do. Somebody else is struggling with the same problem, this thing that sometimes we don't even want to talk about in our own marriage, but certainly we don't want to talk about with other people. And there's a lot of shame around sex problems or when people find distance is happening in their relationship, there's this pressure to keep up a good, brave face. So what I noticed when I watched the audiences, whether it's in Canada or in Poland, is this thing happens with couples in the audience is They'll come in, they'll sit together, they laugh a bit and stuff. And then as it gets a little more heated, they separate, like the man will <laughs> lean over one way and the woman yeah. will lean over another way. And you can see like they actually create distance between themselves. And then as the play becomes more intimate and more is revealed, they start to lean back into each other. And it's such a great feeling to watch that, to know that there's that kind of connection and relationship happening between the people in the audience and the characters on the stage, because ultimately, for me, that's what I love about theatre. It's about real time, real human connection. I've been happy and honoured to see that happen with Sexy Laundry. It's been quite a ride. People probably in their own marriages, or in particular, this particular marriage between Alice and Henry, may not normally talk about their sex life with each other. I'm wondering what it was like for you as the playwright to delve into this subject. I'm just thinking, here we are on the CBC, on the radio and in the podcast talking about yeah. a couple's sex life. Was that ever, um, and we're Canadian. Yes, we're very polite, <laughs> right? yes. <laughs> um, was that ever uncomfortable or embarrassing or what was it like for you? Well, I had a gas writing the play. This play came very easily to me. And from your question, I realized that that's also one of the reasons I had to make this couple more conservative and in their 50s. Because 
I feel that people now today in their 30s, 20s, maybe they do have an opportunity to talk more about things. I decided to create a couple who hadn't been talking about it very much. You know, Alice has a question where she says, when was the last time we had sex, Henry? When was the last time? And Henry says, I don't know. I don't count like you do, right? But I feel that that's what they've gotten to is kind of this, they're not doing it and they're not really talking about it. But Alice is certainly noticing it. And I think maybe for me, it was more from a feminist perspective. I wanted Alice to be the one saying, I have a problem with this. I have a problem that I don't have this intimacy in my relationship and I don't have a good sex life with you because often if we do hear this story, it's the man complaining. It's the woman who's the one who's grown distant or not into it or, you know, whatever. And I wanted the woman to be initiating this conversation. I think by putting it in a hotel room and having them have that sex for dummies, it made it right on the surface, like, These two people are trying to play around with their sex life, but they're so annoyed with each other and disconnected. This is not going to be the path to intimacy that Alice, you know, hopes it's going to be. She's gotten it kind of wrong at the beginning. Yeah, I I wondered about why Alice was the one that was trying to change things up. But I more wondered why Henry was satisfied with the way things Mm -hmm. were. You know, and I was listening to you today, I was getting a little annoyed with mm-hmm. Henry at a certain point, which I guess is, is part of mm-hmm. the design of the play is that he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to try new things. He doesn't like the towels. He doesn't like the price. Like he's really resistant. And mm-hmm. I guess that's a way couples can be is they end up polarizing themselves from each other when they disagree. But yeah, w- what was going on with Henry? I, you talked about why mm-hmm. you chose to have Alice be the one to try and push things forward. Why was Henry so resistant to changing things up in their romantic lives? I think because with Henry underneath is there's a deep fear and almost like a depression going on, which is that he feels that He's missed the boat in some way in his life. He has a line towards the end of the play, like, when did I start having a conservative sensibility and stop having new ideas? And he's been kind of sidelined at work, accused of sort of not being a creative thinker. And I think he suspects it's true. So when Alice confronts him with this very personal problem and says, look, we're not even connecting at that level. I think he's super defensive because he's really afraid. And I I think a lot of argument and a lot of distance is created by it's not just anger, it's fear. It's maybe fear that, oh, I can't change or I don't know what to do about this problem or I don't know who I am anymore and I don't know how to communicate with you. So rather than be vulnerable and messy, you know, he pulls back and kind of falls into his Henry shtick. And Alice is, she says, you know, there, you know, there's always, we all know that we can't change another person. We can only change ourselves and everything. But I really like the, the line in the play <laughs> where Henry goes, you know, you can't change me. And, and she says, why not? Why not? You know, I know you better than anybody and I'm your best friend. And the truth in that is that we do actually help each other change. We don't do it by, I think, by actually changing the other person. We do it by engaging with the other person. And I know, like for myself, with my, in my own relationship, you know, we're, we poke at each other sometimes. And both of us, you know, I know sometimes we resent it, but I know we also come around to kind of like, wow, you know, that question that made me bristle, that made me walk out of the room. That's a good question. Like, I need to answer that question for myself. I need to talk to you about that question. You know, not right now, but (laughs) eventually. (laughs) Kind of cool down. Yeah, we're mirrors for each other, you know? That's true. I wonder how you think this play might land on people differently at this stage in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I say that aside from the fact that we've all sort of for the most part, been at home with our families and with our significant others. But also, we're all sort of going through sort of a reflection about our lives, mm. I think, we've because our lives are not the same, even if things are hopefully getting better. The world feels, I think, like a different place. And so it's almost like if it's not a midlife crisis, maybe it's a job crisis or a family crisis or whatever that may be. Do you feel like people would receive it differently 
in 2022 than say they did originally? I actually think this is a good play. Like we're starting up production again in some countries in Europe. And I think this is a timely play because I think it will release some steam for people. It will actually help them to have that conversation maybe in the car ride home of like, wow, it's been intense the last couple of years. And I have heard that the divorce rate has climbed since the pandemic. I know for myself in my own marriage, I had two thoughts, which was, I'm so grateful I'm doing this with you and get me out of here. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> I need a break. And I'm sure everybody felt like that. Like on the one hand, yeah. oh, I'm with the people I love. And I don't want to, you're boring me and I don't want to see you again for a while because we shouldn't be always just with our yeah. partners, right? Or children yeah. or, or whatever. So yeah, exactly. I hope that Sexy Laundry will allow for a, that conversation and maybe some of that being able to laugh at ourselves is a good thing. I, you know, I've written a sequel to Sexy Laundry, Henry and Alice into the wild and that also gets performed around the place. But when I was in Poland last, we talked about a third installment of these two characters. And I wasn't really sure because I, I don't know. I don't, I didn't know what I wanted to explore with them. But <laughs> since there's been the pandemic, I have thought about that. Like, wow, how are they doing? Yeah. Did they get closer? Did they, <laughs> is Henry out in the backyard? What's happening? <laughs> You you mentioned Poland, and I know this show is a big hit in many places, but in particular in Eastern Europe, yeah. I understand it's been playing in Poland in particular. Just in my research, I think I had heard you say that at one point they had five different productions going at one time. They did. I think there's maybe three now. They had five in Poland. Just to go through the Eastern European countries, it's been in the Czech Republic, Croatia, Lithuania, Slovenia. Poland, it's really big. And and by the way, I went to Poland to see it in Warsaw and they did such an excellent production. And I don't speak Polish, but I was, yeah, yeah, I don't. I was going to ask you, how do you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know how I know is I've also been to other countries where I don't speak the language and I can tell it's not a great production. Mm. I can tell because the laughter is not there. I can feel there's no connection between the actors. But in Poland, it was fantastic, and in part because the actors there work in rep with the same people for years. I think these actors have been working together for, you know, 20 years off and on, doing all sorts of plays. And the Polish audiences just really ate it up. So that was really fun to see. What is it like to have the play translated, to have... I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I'm, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Get put into other languages, because I'm assuming when it is in other countries, it's it's not performed necessarily in English. Is that the case? It so far has not been performed in English. It's been in Iceland or Mexico City, so it's always translated into the language of the place. And first of all, with the idea about a translator, a translator is an artist. It doesn't go through right. Google Translate. It's really important that the translator responds to the play, understands the play. I usually have a conversation with the translator and the director. And we talk about, you know, the nuances, how it needs to shift for the culture, what might need to change. Now, in Eastern Europe, unlike in Canada or the US, they are a little looser in terms of what they can do with the play. Like here, you can't change lines in a play without getting permission from the playwright. Apparently there you can change some things. And there's a great story about a translator and Tom Stoppard, and they were sitting down to watch one of his plays in the theater and, or it was actually the director and the director turned to him just before the lights went down and said, don't worry, we fixed the ending. <laughs> oh. <laughs> changed it. And so I noticed a few things in Sexy Laundry. One thing happened in Poland, Alice went into the bathroom to smoke and I was like, oh. Well, that never happened. I mean, she does go into the bathroom, but she doesn't smoke. But I liked it. I liked the idea that, you know, this kind of uptight woman was secretly going, breaking the law, actually, and going into the bathroom and having a cigarette. So I think you have to be open to some shifts because you got another artist involved with you working on the play. 
you talked about age. When I was listening to it today, I was thinking part of this, it seems, is that Alice and Henry aren't necessarily angry exclusively at each other, mm-hmm. but that they're not. It's an accepting of the fact that they're not who they were when they first met. They're not that young woman or that ambitious man anymore. How much of it is a midlife crisis or a coming to terms? And maybe it would even seem this way more for you now that you're older than you were when you wrote it. But that's how it landed for mm-hmm. me when I was listening to it today was the passing of time and that no matter what you some things change yes and I think Henry makes that point really clearly like look we we aren't who we were and we're and contrary to popular culture people do get older I think is his line I don't know that they're struggling so much with the idea of like trying to get back to something maybe at the beginning of the play Alice is thinking a bit like that like trying to get back to something and Henry kind of has a fantasy of the past a little bit I don't think that that's at the heart of it. I think the question ultimately is, who am I today? You know, like, who am I? And I, I suppose that's the at the heart of all, you know, drama and story is this idea of like, who am I? And maybe when we're younger, it's more reflected in the culture, there's more of a mirror in the culture about who we are, and we can find, you know, examples or mentors or things we aspire to. But I just think that there's something that happens in middle age where you actually have to go more deeply inside and answer that question for yourself. And there can be a feeling, I know for Alice there is, of I feel like I'm kind of invisible in the culture. I can't find myself out there. But I don't personally believe that's a bad thing. I just think she needs to change her orientation and start to look inside. And Possibly that's what starts to happen at middle age for us is we become less oriented to what's going on out there and our ambition and how we're reflected in the eyes of other people and more asking the questions that are about what do I care about? Who am I? I feel like just to jump a little bit, but when my son graduated high school, I in a sense felt younger and freer than I had in a long time because I really knew what my role was as I was sort of shepherding him through school and very strongly a mom and constant and there and consistent and everything. But there was this lovely sense of freedom when he graduated and now he's kind of out on his own and everything. It's, I felt like I kind of popped up my head and I could look around my life and go, okay, well, here we are. Like, <laughs> what next? Like, what? <laughs> I could actually go to Europe and see the play, which I did. I think it's very true. Like when you hear Alice and Henry talk and they've both had careers Mm -hmm. and they've raised kids. And I think for a lot of people, that's very busy. That takes up a lot of time. It can be exhausting and that you don't have the time to stop and reflect on who you are or what you like or what you want to do. And I think also when you're young, I have a teenage daughter Mm -hmm. and it's like, well, what do you like? What are your passions? What do you want to do when you grow up? But that's not asked of people when they hit a certain age. That's a very good point. That would actually make a great scene. The daughter turned around and asked her mom, like, what do you like? What are your passions? Because they change. They're not the same as, you know, before you had your daughter or, you know, 10 years ago. And, um, yeah, we have to ask ourselves those questions. And I think because parenthood is very consuming, it can be, well, I want to be a good mom. I want these things for you. I think, like you said, when your kids graduate, and I'm glad to hear that there's a positive (laughs) because it sounds like a very frightening prospect, I have to say. Well, I think in relationships, a lot of times what happens is the kids grow up and then there is that reckoning, that moment of, okay, now there's you, like, who are you, my partner? Who am I? Who are you? Like, (laughs) it's kind of like unknown territory. My husband always jokes that when my daughter finally or our daughter finally leaves the nest, he's going to say, now, what was I doing? Yeah. Well, like it's just been those like 18 year. That's great. Hiatus. And like, well, where was I? (laughs) Yeah. Where where was I? What what do I want to do next? Yeah. Do you find that um, that women take their husbands to see this play? I mean, I know women in general tend to take their husbands to theater in general, but I just wonder if there's a ulterior motive 
from the wives taking the husbands? Well, I know for a fact that when we did it at the arts club and it was held over, I think the reason it was held over was because women came with their women friends and then they came back with their husbands. <laughs> they were like, let's go see this play. And, and, you know, and hopefully the husbands had a good time. I think they mostly did. You know, I had one experience at the arts club where the play ended and there was a woman sitting in the audience and everybody left and this woman was sitting there and the usher went down to talk to her and she was crying. And she said, I never would have gotten a divorce if I'd seen this play, which was sad. I thought it was sad. I, you know, I don't know if that's true, but I understand the feelings that it evoked in her, the wishfulness that her husband and her would have been able to, you know, have that kind of conversation that Henry and Alice ultimately have in this play. You know, I thought that when I was listening to it, because I thought how many couples just didn't have this weekend to talk it mm. out. And I also thought as sort of, bored as Alice is or as complacent as they've become, I wonder how many single people might hear that or people that would give anything to have that level of comfort and mm. reliability of a relationship and that it's something that it's easy if you're in the middle of it to criticize it, but it's actually something that so many of us mm. want. Yeah. And that's a good point too, because I agree with Henry when he says to Alice, you're taking this for granted. A lot of people don't have what we have. It takes work. Yeah. And it does. And it's easy to dismiss what you have sometimes. This woman came up to me once after the show. She was a psychiatrist. And she said to me, as if Henry and Alice were real people, you know what? Henry and Alice are going to be okay. And I was like, great. How do you know that? And she said, because they are still fighting. And if they're fighting that hard, there's still love there. They are still passionate about their relationship. He came to the hotel room. You know, they got it wrong, but they also got it right by trying. And, you know, I think we live in a culture that's very afraid of confrontation, particularly right now, you know, of getting it wrong and saying the wrong thing. But I believe in a relationship that you have to be willing to get messy. You have to be willing to go to the difficult places in order to get out to the other side, you know, and we're not going to do it perfectly. So in the play, you know, they don't even start off really particularly polite, but they definitely get into a knockdown drag out fight where they say some not very nice things. And I think that's also for a relief for people to hear that, oh, you know, we go to some dark places sometimes and we also can come through them and forgive each other and, you know, find the way that we want to communicate with one another. But that is part of a relationship. And maybe that's the other thing we don't do a lot in our culture is mirror that kind of relationship that's just a sort of difficult, up and down, mundane, you know, it's hard to do in an hour of a drama, Netflix show or something kind of show. Here we are again, brushing our teeth. <laughs> Yeah, I think just the fact that even though not every element of the exercises that Alice tries to put them through is successful, and even though Henry is resistant to a lot of it, he does try. Yes. Right? And that seems to be the key that just try and step out of your comfort zone, even if you feel ridiculous and sound ridiculous. And, you know, that was actually something that came from the original director, Andrew McElroy, who had a great deal to do with shaping the play and helping it kind of get on its way. And even in his directing of the comedy, he said, what we need to do as actors is we always need to commit to them trying Try, try, try. And then they hit the obstacle, but don't play the obstacle. Don't stand in the corner with your arms folded, lean in. And then it just gets to be too much for Henry. Or, you know, Alice says something that upsets them or she goes off in some tangent or whatever. But yes, I think at the heart of it, they both have a commitment to the other person. And we've talked about the play, and we've talked a little bit about the pandemic, but I'm asking all of the playwrights that we're speaking yeah. to lately, because uh, theater has been so impacted yes. by what's happened, as so many industries have been. How have you been doing, and, and what are your feelings for the future of theater? I know you had a pandemic story yes. that tied into the play. Well, just before the pandemic broke <laughs> took over the world, I had planned a trip to Europe to go and actually see 
Sexy Laundry in Prague and in Warsaw, as well as the sequel, Henry and Alice. And then I was going to spend three months there writing and traveling. And I was supposed to meet my husband and my son was going to Belgium. He's a cook. He was going to go cook there. So I actually got an opportunity. I went at the beginning of March 2020 and I sat in a theater of 600 people in Prague and watched the play. And it was great and it was fun. And I went to Warsaw and saw the play and it was great and it was fun. And I got into this little Airbnb in Krakow, Poland. I literally had kept a journal and I had written in my journal one day, I'm so happy to be here. I'm ready to start working on a new play. This has been a great experience. A little homesick. Wonder what it will be like being away from home for, you know, three months. The next day I write, they are shutting down the airports. This coronavirus is real. I have to get home. And I had a ticket but it was, you know, for some time in the future. And I literally changed my ticket and then met some tourists on the streets. And I said, well, I've changed my ticket to Tuesday. And they're like, no, they're shutting down the airport tomorrow. Like you need a ticket now if you want to get out of Poland. And so I got a ticket online, got to the airport. They actually brought in the army to get rid of people that didn't have tickets. It was so surreal. I didn't really know what was going on. And I flew to London and I stayed with a friend and in London, they were acting like there was no pandemic. So people were running around and doing whatever, because that was at the beginning, if you remember, you know, I think they were going to do the let's just ignore this and pretend it's not happening. <laughs> and got on an airplane and, you know, sat beside a woman that was completely had plastic all over her and a mask on and thought, this is so strange. My husband picked me up at the airport. He couldn't hug me. He was wearing gloves, but no mask, because at that time they told us, at that very early time, we weren't supposed to wear masks. They were for the, uh, the doctors and the nurses or they didn't know, or maybe it made you get the virus. We didn't know we were washing our groceries and stuff. Yes, so I was, I, I was, my three month trip was a nine day trip. And then I was home with my 18 year old son at the time and my husband. And I thought, great. Well, you know, after I settled in a bit, I'll have all this time to write. And cause I'm a writer, you know, I'm used to being at home. I swear to God, the first year I just made banana bread and the New York Times macaroni and cheese. <laughs> and we finally watched all of Game of Thrones. I did not have it in me. I did not feel creative in that way. But once I sort of let go and surrendered to the idea that we are in a whole new game right now, I really enjoyed the time with my son because he was supposed to, he was meant to be in Belgium cooking and he was now home in his room playing video games. And then he started to learn to play chess and he taught me how to play chess. And that became this really great thing that we did. I found the first year of the pandemic much easier than the second year when things started to open up a bit. And then I have a new play opening at the arts club next year, thankfully, but it was meant to be on and it was canceled. We did a premiere of another play of mine that actually, you know, it was really difficult. We had distance in the theater. We only had 12 people in at a time. And then Omicron broke out and they had to cancel it. So when you're in rehearsal and you do all that work and then you're ready for the audience and the audience is ready for you, but then they can't come and it just shuts down and it kind of fades away. It feels so anticlimactic, you know, it kind of just feels like it just died on the vine, which that was not fun, you know, but I know lots of people have those, those stories. The very last time that we were in the CBC studio to record was with an actor that was doing an interview with us and she was rehearsing her show for Toronto. And I thought that show's not going to open. Mm. <laughs> I just know, I just have a feeling that that show is not going to open. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, and she looked really tired. Yeah. And it's so, yeah, it's so disheartening to have it happen and then and then start again and then happen again. Yeah. Do you feel optimistic for the future for live theater? I definitely feel things have changed. And some of the changes have been good and necessary. I mean, during the pandemic, we've had a lot of good conversation about diversity and some of that has come up and that's important. And so let's hope that sort of the landscape of theater changes as we, you know, move forward to reflect that conversation. But the good thing I think about theater is that it's great that we pivoted and did theater online and did the, our Zoom theater, but that's not where it belongs. It belongs on the stage with an audience. It's one of those rare things where you have to have, you know, the people there for it. And it kind of exists in the moment like that. And I love that about theater. And I think people are hungry for that kind of connection. 
So I do believe that I think it's going to be tough getting rolling because people have been away from it for so long. And even me, like thinking of being in a full theater right beside somebody else, it's a little, it's strange because we've been trained up to be distant. But I don't think theater is dead. I think it's going to find a new life and it will breathe life again into our culture. I think we need it. I think the movies might be dying. The movie theater is more than the theater because we've all gotten so used to watching the movies on Netflix and TV. Absolutely. Although I can say I have gone to see a movie and I'm, there's a movie I want to go see now, mm. but I feel like there is also like, get me out of the house yes, feeling. Yes. At least now, you know, while things are maybe settling down in some places before they potentially kick back up, I hope that people will take the opportunity to get out. But it is a weird mindset because yeah. it's hard to be constantly told to be careful, but go out and enjoy yourself. It's it's, For me, yeah. this is the most difficult part now, which is there's no restrictions, really, but also there's lots of COVID around. But it's actually you're going to be OK if you get it. Maybe it's just <laughs> it's the maybe part. It's, it's very strange. Yeah, it's a kind of anxiety producing, isn't it? And, it, and I guess there can be an impulse yeah. to just sort of hide out. But I took my mom to see a dance show the other night, my 87-year-old mother, and she had not been in a theater for you know, over two years and everything. And she was just glowing when it was over. And it was so nice to sit in a theater and to be engaged in something that was happening live in front of us. And, you know, we are social creatures. We need connection with one another and not just through screens. It has to be, you know more than just with our partners. We have to get out of the house in order to appreciate our partners. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to ask you, because it's rare to speak to a playwright that has had the international success that you've had. And I want to know, what's that like? Because I know it's sometimes discouraging to hear stories of what the reality is mm. of being a writer. It's easy to romanticize <sighs> the career. But yeah. I, I'd love to hear from you. Um, particularly for the podcast, because we have writers that listen. Yeah. Can, can you give us a frank and honest sense of the pros and cons of being a working playwright that is produced internationally? Well, I consider it a kind of a gift that, you know, that a few of my plays have been that successful, that then produced internationally and that have provided some income, because that's a huge thing. As a writer, you're always wrestling with how to make money. But I'll tell you this. I started writing, you know, plays in my early 20s. And I've written, I guess I'm just looking at my wall because I got a bunch of posters up here, but I've written maybe, you know, 15. And I have had many different jobs. I was a horrible waitress for years. Then I, you know, worked in advertising because I wanted to do something that had something to do with writing. I was always negotiating for time off. I was a rare person who wanted to make less money so I could have more time to write a play. And every real writer, I think, knows if they're a writer that they just need to write. And when I came to terms with the fact that, you know, I may never make a living from this. It's difficult to make a living as a playwright. Rare. But I am committed to this because I love it. It was very liberating and freeing. And so I think as much as I'm proud of my success in, you know, Europe or having plays being done in other places, that didn't have that much to do with me. I was lucky, you know, a woman found a play, the play I'd written on Amazon, read it, translated it, talked to my agent, it started something, right? And I have a good agent. But what I'm more proud about is my stick to <laughs> which is to continue to write when those plays get a production and don't get the second production or when the thing you think is going to be the one, you know, and it doesn't get the review that you hope it's going to get. Those are the hard times, right? When it's like, well, why am I doing this? You know, and the answer to that, I'm doing it because ultimately I love theater and I love to write. And that's how I explore story and that's how I make meaning in my life. So I guess if I was talking to a, a young playwright, I would say, you have to really, really want to do this because you just really want to write a play. Start there. See what you create. 
And then hopefully the universe will conspire to help you have some success. But we have to define our success for ourselves. And it can't be by how many productions or how many people saw it or how much money you made from it, because that just takes you down. a. It can really be a dead end. And part B of that answer is like, it's fantastic going to different countries and seeing a show that you've written connect with audiences because we do do it to connect with people. Um, so yes, I like that. <laughs> it, it really must be a wonderful feeling to know that so many people have seen your work. I'm sure other plays as well, but in particular, Sexy Laundry, yeah. just because of the number of times it's been playing for years. But yeah. that just because there's so many plays that get, you know, written and it takes a long time it does. to write a play. Yes. And get it produced takes a long time. Absolutely. Yeah. You workshop it, give a dramaturg, mm -hmm. actors read it mm -hmm. and audiences see it and get, blah, blah, blah. It's just so much work. But to know that people are actually experiencing it because you know, it, even if it's produced, it can be on for three weeks and then it, you know, yeah. so many plays. I'm like, whatever happened to such and such a play? I, I never hear about it mm. anymore. You know, that's the majority mm. of them. So that must be just a wonderful feeling to know that. It really is. It's it is a wonderful feeling. And I'm really grateful in a way that it's this particular play, that this play is about love and it's about connection and it's about something I believe in, like fighting for your marriage. And and I know that it's also successful for that reason. It's it's a universal kind of play. Everybody has intimate relationships, you know, whether you're married or not married, whether you think highly of the institution of marriage or not. It's something that people are interested in is how do I communicate with the person I love. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that also, actually, just because I was thinking, well, this is, you know, I a lot of the questions that we're writing about was like the husband and the wife. Mm. And, and I wondered, yeah, what, what an audience that was not cisgendered or was not heterosexual, or hadn't been in a relationship for this many years was maybe feeling sort of a bit of boredom after two years. Do you think it relates beyond the couple that is uh, illustrated in this particular piece. Absolutely. Because yeah. because it doesn't matter that they're a heterosexual couple. It's about what's going on inside them. It's that universal thing of I'm feeling that there's something wrong in my relationship and you must be the problem. <laughs> and I don't think it matters your sexual orientation. I think we can all feel that way. And we also have a lot of young people, young couples come and they enjoy the show as well because, you know, like they're looking at the same question just at a different time in their life. The last question I have for you is the role of the comedy. Mm. And I feel like in theater, sometimes comedy doesn't get, or a play that is funny, even mm. if it has uh, tender moments um, or uh, obviously deeper meaning beyond any good comedy does. But I sometimes feel that comedy just doesn't get the same... Respect. No. <laughs> and as a producer of Play Me, Chris and I love to have a really gripping drama or really challenging play, but we also like to have something that is got some humor and, and that's lighthearted and touching and it's something that isn't dark. Mm. But I just I know as a writer myself, sometimes it's not always seen the same way. Did you find that or how do you find that as a writer? I think you're right. I think it can be taken for granted or dismissed. First of all, I'll just say this in defense of comedy. Comedy is difficult. It is structure and rhythm and it, you get the test right away with a comedy. A drama, you know, people will sit quietly and you don't know if they're bored or they're engaged. A comedy, if they're not laughing, it's not funny. It's not working. So you get the test every night with the with the audience. Um, one thing with Sexy Laundry I was very aware of is like, if you're going to deal with difficult subject matter, it's like you have to draw people in. And I like that idea of like, open the heart with laughter, and then get in there with a knife, right? <laughs> and really get into some of the darker stuff. So that was part of the idea with the structure of Sexy Laundry. What I enjoy about working with Eastern European directors, dramaturgs, even journalists that I've done interviews with is... They don't talk about the play, interestingly enough, like a comedy. They approach it as like a drama, which is 
what I always say to the directors, mine the relationship, find all the different nuances of this relationship and the comedy will come. The comedy will just be the byproduct of that work. This play does not work as well when it's played for laughs, because then the relationship doesn't feel true. It just feels like they're going for jokes. And any of my friends will tell you, I cannot tell a joke to save my life. I write funny sometimes because the characters are in situations or the way they think and stuff, but I'm not writing jokes. And I think that's the confusion sometimes with comedy too, that we're just telling a bunch of jokes and it's not that it's relationship. We're laughing at ourselves. I think in this particular play, it's funny because it is so real Mm. and true, but I just want to say thank you so much. I love this play. I, I feel like it's a great play for right now. I mean, it's a great play anytime, but it really resonates, I think right now. And I'm so grateful that you allowed us to make it part of our season. And I'm so excited to share it with people on the radio and on the podcast. So thank you. And thank you. And I'm so glad it gets to be shared with your audience. And it was really a delight to hear it again. Thank you. That was Laura speaking with Michelle Rimmel about her play, Sexy Laundry. To listen to all three of her episodes, follow us on Apple or Google Podcasts or the CBC Listen app, or by going to cbc.ca forward slash play me. And while you're there, please consider rating and reviewing us. We want to take this opportunity to recognize the playwrights who helped make this season possible. A special thanks to Daniel McIver, Andrea Scott, Anusha Rani, Christine Quintana, and Michelle Rimmel for trusting us with their plays. And a very big thank you to all our actors, our partners at CBC Podcast, and to you, our listeners, for helping to keep theatre and radio drama alive. And don't forget, as of today, we have 159 episodes for your listening pleasure. And we'll be with you on CBC Radio 1 all summer, every Sunday at 9pm and Wednesdays at 11pm. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. We'd love to know what you think about Play Me. You can email us at playme at cbc.ca. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Theatre or Instagram at PlayMePodcast. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. A special thanks to our CBC producers, Sarah Clayden, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is RF Norani. Our senior director is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.